Well, we all celebrated Thanksgiving this week, a respite from the den of politics. Hope your Thanksgiving was basically free of politics. <laughs> but the den of politics anyway is all over the place. And right now we want to take a closer look. That's our Thanksgiving roundtable today. We have a great one for you, and it is supersized today. Sean Foreman is a professor of political science at Barry University. Mark Lapointe is a partner at Pillsbury Law Firm, former federal prosecutor and a Marine veteran of the Gulf War. Raquel Rocky Rodriguez is a veteran government relations attorney with McDonald Hopkins and was general counsel to former Governor Jeb Bush. Mark Caputo reports for Politico. He is covering the 2020 presidential race with a special emphasis on Florida. Hello, everybody. Hi, everybody. Hello. Great Hello. big round table. No turkey, wine. no wine. Sorry. What a shame. Yeah, I know. Uh, Mark, let me begin with you. Sort of the question I asked our previous guest, uh, and that is that Tuesday uh, in Sunrise was, to me, a vivid reminder and a good uh, needed one of just how deep and strong support for Donald Trump is here in South Florida, which is basically a blue area. Of course, these people came from Martin County and Brevard County and Naples and other places, but mainly it was South Florida. Well, Broward County is the second most populous county in the state, so it right. kind of stands to reason you have the, the second highest number of Republicans in the state anyway. Right. But an interesting thing for me is last week in Politico, we did a story about what is Michael Bloomberg, the billionaire now running for the Democratic nomination, uh, what is he thinking? How does he think that he could shape the race? And his advisors are telling us that if the election were held today, Donald Trump would be reelected because he'd carry all six important swing states. And Florida is number one in those. Yeah. So it's not just in South Florida where yeah. his base is strong. Bloomberg's own polling shows it in Florida, in Pennsylvania, in Ohio, in Wisconsin, in Arizona, in yeah. North Carolina. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, these are, these are important data points to think about where Richard DiNapoli, the chairman of the GOP in Broward, had talked about kind of the enthusiasm, the importance, and how yeah. strong uh, Trump is in Florida. He's right. Yeah. Well, it, to your point, uh, Rocky, maybe that's why the president flew into Palm Beach. He lives now in Palm Beach County. Why not just hold it at the Javits Center there or some other big place, but not in Broward? Because people came from all over. We, we were there. Uh, to Michael's point, people were all over Florida. Why not hold this in Palm Beach County? I think that um, Broward is a very convenient location because you can, it's more, it's easier for people from Dade County and from the Naples area and the Fort Myers area to get into Broward instead of having to go a little bit more north and east uh, over to the Kravis Center. Uh, and so, uh, and I think that the, uh, the BB&T arena, I think is significantly bigger than the Kravis Center and uh, very well suited to the kind mm -hmm. of rally that he wanted to have. So I think geographically it was a great location. Yeah, Mark, um, I noticed out in that parking lot there were signs for every voter subset you could think of, gays for Trump, uh, Cubans for Trump, uh, and blacks for Trump. Uh, but that crowd at that rally overwhelmingly, not surprisingly, but overwhelmingly were white people. Uh, what's the message there? Well, I mean, I think the the image speaks for itself. At the end of the day, I, I think Mark Caputo, we were talking about this earlier, when we looked at what was on the screen, what we saw, uh, in fact, it was a, not just predominantly, you would have to say 99.9%. Uh, and, uh, you know, my view of the world is, uh, while that may in fact uh, 
be important to Trump himself, but at the end of the day, I don't believe, and I'm no political expert, that his base by itself is going to actually uh, prevail. I think he's still going to have to re reach out to other folks. He's still going to have mm -hmm. to reach out to other folks who are not necessarily part of that 34, 35, 36 percent that's been steady for him. There's no question about that. That base, he's on it uh, since he became president. But, right. I d but, but, but people sort of assume that that base is ultimately what ultimately uh, got him to win. The fact of the matter, though, is there are some folks who are not part of that base who actually voted for Trump. And for sure. me, at least, the question is whether or not those people outside of that base, outside of that core white uh, you know, uh, base who are actually going to go again and vote for Trump next time around. You know what I think the message is, I'm sorry, do you want to Because uh, I was going to ask you, the, and take, take this, if you will, and run with it. The message that started bubbling up in 2018, the Republicans labeling Democrats socialist. And you saw it bubble up here in South Florida where there are people mm -hmm. who have immigrated from socialist countries who know what that feels like. But it sort of has spread nationally. And I, I'm, I'm watching it as we go to these rallies be a very effective tool, even though technically speaking, Democrats are not socialists. They're just not. That's not a political statement. It just is. Do you see that resonating? And when you answer that, then talk about what I just cut you off and you wanted to say <laughs> before that. It is resonating. <laughs> what I was going to say is two takeaways I have from that Trump rally is one, he seems to be in pretty good health. There were concerns about his health mm -hmm. and mental state uh, the week before. But, you know, to be up there and give that one and a half hour rousing stump speech that he does over and over and come out of it looking pretty healthy. And secondly, the Republican Party and the members of Congress are staunchly behind him. As we heard uh, the Broward chair say, what impeachment? You'd, you'd almost <laughs> think that they feel like they won already. The members of Congress behind him, they're all, they're ready for this fight. So they're already moving forward to think about November 2020. And uh, yes, that talking point of labeling yeah. Sanders and Warren as socialists, as, as misguided as may be, Well, well Sanders actually does call himself he, a, a Democrat. Democrat. Yeah, I was say, he's labeled yeah. himself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so that notwithstanding, but you heard, for instance, at the rally, you know, the president brought up socialism again. I mean, Joe Biden isn't a, a socialist, Kamala Harris isn't a socialist, Pete Buttigieg isn't a socialist, on and on and on. But, but that's a real, a real resonating topic. Uh, Rocky, <laughs> let me ask you, um, again, I, I asked a number of maybe two dozen people at that rally. Uh, are you worried about impeachment and these charges that are the basis of it? Uh, and to a person, they said no. Why does not, with at least the Trump base, why isn't there any traction for this? Or is it strictly a partisan Republican-Democrat kind of thing? No, because um, I think it, uh, it goes beyond just Republicans. I know there's a number of uh, Democrats, maybe not so hyper-partisan, and some independents that still haven't seen a reason to impeach the president, much less remove him from office. And uh, I, I really do think that the election is what matters. Let the people yeah. decide. Yeah. And from, for Republicans uh, to a person, uh, I think that nobody has seen anything, again, that supports a ground for impeachment. And they view this as a completely partisan and political process that is uh, more about the 2020 election than an actual uh, constitutional proceeding. What, what's the Politico view of that? Of which? the impeachment process possibly backfiring uh, it's possible uh, that, that has been the conventional wisdom for some time but 
since the impeachment proceedings began, support for impeachment went up and still outpaces mm. opposition to impeachment. <coughs> now it appears, if you're looking at some of the polling and you're looking very granularly, it is, uh, you know, the, the, that rate of increase of support for impeachment has either stalled or fallen a bit. But you know, the conventional wisdom has been wrong about impeachment. It's, uh, its effects. Uh, uh, Donald Trump doesn't help himself in these circumstances by kind of lashing out. Uh, but we are going to see a change after the House goes through its process and more than likely impeaches him. We're going to have the Senate take it up, and he's going to be acquitted. So presumably, if Trump messages properly, that should help him. Yeah. Well, then it will be decided at the ballot box in November of 2020, possibly. We're, again, getting ahead of ourselves. We're sorry. That's what we do. <laughs> this week, Governor Ron DeSantis uh, made it a point to tell lawmakers and the general public one of his priorities. He is pushing for the use of E-Verify as, uh, as a law, E-Verify being the internet mechanism by which to vet workers who apply to make sure they are legal residents. Right now, uh, Mark LaPointe, right now is it's a law to do that to not hire undocumented workers um, in South Florida. Many are because of our economy here. The governor says he wants to make things safe and legal. Uh, people who are opposed to it say it is another way to, to harm undocumented immigrants. What say you? Well, I would, I would say when both the ACLU and Kennedy Institute actually have come out against which we've just uh, learned from Rocky Rodriguez sure, during the commercial right, right. break. <laughs> but, but, but Cato has actually they've yeah. published they've published a position, uh, a position paper on E-Verify, and basically, <clears throat> the fact of the matter though is, uh, everyone now is using E-Verify as this sort of a silver bullet that's going to solve all of our immigration problems, and you know that does not deal with the key part of this, and that is you want to have uh, comprehensive immigration that actually addresses in a meaningful way the number of uh, undocumented folks who are here, folks who are working with us, who are working in our homes, who are working uh, in our businesses. And, and frankly, the, the governor, Governor <coughs> DeSantis, lost me uh, as he was making the argument for you verify when he started talking about uh, you know, those undocumented being uh, you know, uh, breaking the law. He's talking about money laundering. Mm -hmm. To me, at that point, it showed a certain amount of bad faith. Uh, I mean, as a former prosecutor, as a former federal prosecutor, he's talking about money laundering. Somehow, E-Verify is going to prevent those things. Uh, when I was prosecuting folks, uh, I got to tell you, you know, uh, undocumented aliens were not folks uh, that came under uh, my target. Those were not folks. They were regular they're Americans. They're not bringing in billions. They're not in bringing in billions. They're not. They're not money launderers necessarily. I imagine there are some who are. But, but I would say that the numbers is no more than uh, yeah. perhaps the, the, the other folks. So, uh, so I'm a little bit concerned when the governor is actually mm -hmm. making those kinds of associations. It speaks volume to where his heart really is as opposed to solving this problem. Yeah, Sean Foreman, it was kind of a Trump-esque riff that the governor was in there when he, oh, who has generally been moderate on many of these issues. But, you know, as Mark said, I mean, to talk about uh, immigrants, people who are not subject to E-Verify being um, lawbreakers or money launderers. Uh, that seems to be sort of the governor following the Trump doctrine. Well, immigration was one of the issues that helped DeSantis win the nomination over Put uh, Putnam and win the governorship. Right. And they had a victory last year in, in Tallahassee for Republicans to say that they banned sanctuary cities in Florida, which, of course, we weren't sure that any actually existed, but that's now law. 
And I think the deal was last year, let's get the Sanctuary Cities bill passed, save E-Verify for next year. Right. Now they can come back, they have the votes, they'll get it through, and they can say they're tough on immigration each year. Yeah. But R Rocky, E-Verify is just a way to check what is already supposed to be checked anyway. I mean, if you just kind of, on face value, people aren't supposed to hire undocumented workers. They do here, and you know, it's just the law as it stands. So why, why is this so controversial? Well, I think uh, we have to separate, as, as you just did very uh, capably, the, the issue of lawful employment, of which you have to be authorized to work in this country, either as a citizen or resident, or have a visa, uh, versus the mechanism for verifying whether you are qualified, and that is the mechanism is E-Verify. Now, E-Verify is already in use in the federal government if you're a federal contractor or you receive federal funds of some sort, and uh, it's already in use in state employment, and it's mandatory in a handful of states. And um, Florida, by uh, you know, no debate, that we do have a lot of undocumented immigrants working in the agriculture area and mm. in the hotel area. And I think the thinking of the governor and the sponsors is, look, we have capable employees here whose wages are being suppressed because employers are hiring undocumented uh, workers who will work at a much lower wage. So part of this, I think, is um, I don't think it's in bad faith. I think it's in good faith to try to even the playing field for employers. Now, we do have to avoid unintended consequences. There are issues with the database. For example, they check your identity, but some employers don't check that the actual identi identification documents being presented by the person are actually them. Mm -hmm. They could use the, uh, yeah. the ID of somebody with a similar name, and the employers are not really taking that extra step. Yeah. And I think the bad faith is on the part of the employers that are not actually following the law. Yeah, Mark, you spent several years in Tallahassee covering the legislature and the governor. Um, uh, as Rocky said, there are big ag, ag interests. There are tourism people who really like the way the system works now. They're they don't want government. They, they don't, don't want government mandates. They either. do That's not want order. government yeah. in their, you know, office and making employment decisions. Yeah, but Donald Trump wants to win elections, so tough luck. Uh, understand, like <laughs> Donald Trump's election in Florida disproved the conventional wisdom that if you spoke so harshly about immigration, illegal immigration you couldn't win the Hispanic vote and therefore you couldn't win Florida. Right. Wrong. And then it was said, oh, okay, well, if Ron DeSantis does it, that's not going to happen. He got elected. Wrong. So <laughs> this should surprise no one. In, in the end, uh, you know, I, I'll let the, the folks who are, who are pushing or opposing the merits speak on, on their own, but uh, it, this doesn't sound like that significant a change to the overall way right. large employers operate. Smaller ones might have more of a problem. If you have ever driven on West Dixie Highway, South Dixie Highway, there is a move to change the name. And before we get into that discussion, take a listen to Miami-Dade Commissioner Dennis Moss, who made that proposal this week. The changing uh, the name Dixie, uh, which is associated with the Confederacy, slavery, um, well, I think KKK, and... Um, you know, those kinds of negative um, movements that have been a part of our past. Dennis Moss says he is about to sponsor legislation. I don't know if you heard uh, Rebecca Sosa, another commissioner, said, wow, I didn't realize that. Sean Foreman, uh, the naming of, uh, renaming of Dixie Highway, which goes clear across the county, 
uh, how do you say no to when you hear something like that? And yet, what problems that might cause business-wise for mm -hmm. so many people? Weigh in on that. It's not going to be a simple issue. Uh, when I moved to Florida from Western Pennsylvania in 1993, I was a little surprised by the Dixie Highway. You were? But <laughs> I was. And then I came to realize that this is part of the South. And there, now we see there are Dixie Highways uh, throughout not just Florida, but other southern states that are part of an old highway system. Right. So now we want to come forward to 2019 and say, let's change the name because of the recent debates over Confederate uh, symbols and statues and, and words. And, um, you know, this is a big, <clears throat> big issue that I think we have to have a conversation about. I don't think a couple yeah. commissioners can come forward and say so. It's going to cost money for businesses and it's going to be confusing for, for tourists. Yeah. Uh, Mark LaPointe, a couple of years ago, we nationally had this debate, as Sean is referring to, uh, Confederate statues were either taken down or moved elsewhere. I remember uh, uh, the mayor of New Orleans gave an eloquent speech when the uh, main statue of a Confederate uh, uh, general was taken down there. Uh, so it's a little surprising, isn't it, that this is only coming up now? But, you know, a statue is different from a historical highway name, whatever the connotations are. I think you're correct. If you actually, sort of in the hierarchy of things, when you think of the statue, the Confederate statues versus an actual sign that reflects a, a geographical sort of uh, location, there may be some distinction to be made there. But I would say, I would go back to Glenna's point. Glenna noticed that while Commissioner Moss was talking, another commissioner actually so, stated, oh really? So to me, there is a, there's a historical element here, and I think a lot of folks simply are not, uh, you know, unfortunately, not attuned to the, the deep history that we have in this country, that is a deep history of, 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 of not just racism, that this was a country that was built upon slavery, that a lot of folks here, uh, you know, have tremendous, tremendous pain actually having to actually uh, go through life, having to actually see these things, having to reconcile with it. Now, Sean mentioned it is part of the South, right? Mm -hmm. The notion that you have these things here, but that is the problem, right? If you ask an African-American who actually, whose parents or grandparents, right, were, uh, were slaves, uh, for them, that part of the South is deeply, deeply offensive. And for them, I think a community has responsibility, in fact, uh, an obligation to actually address uh, the kind of scars, the kind of historical scars that people uh, are, are living under. So I think, I don't think it's enough to say, well, this may be inconvenient for folks in terms of what it may cost, or it is simply part of the South. Yeah. Uh, all of us have a responsibility to address this. I mean, let me put it to you this way. We live in South, in, in South Florida. Uh, could we have a street called uh, Fidel Castro Street running down, <laughs> uh, running down, uh, 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 you know, Coral Gables or some yeah. other place? Can, I don't can think I just that would take be accepted. that one? Because the, the answer is, not only no, but hell no. But the Dixie is is there's uh, Dixie to me means Dixie cups. That's my first. No, I'm I'm being so serious. Mm -hmm. We had Dixie cups, little hygienic cups. There's Win Dixie. There's so Dixie is so much else. So go ahead. I remember <laughs> in 2007, I think it was when the legislature was debating changing the state song, which had some pretty racist yeah, lyrics in it, yeah. and uh, uh, local. NAACP organizer told me, what do you think I think of as a black man when I think of that song and I cross into Dixie, in, in Dixie County? Uh -huh. um, so your experience, my experience, I think uh, white people's experience with Dixie is very different very than black different. people's. And that's a perfect example you yeah. pointed out there on that commission. Rocky yeah. Rodriguez, uh, Commissioner Moss had said, 
Why don't we name this these stretches of Dixie Highway, uh, Harriet Tubman Highway or Road? And uh, with all deference to Miss Tubman, a phenomenal figure in American history, the Underground Railroad. You know, I was thinking, why not the Athlete Range Highway or the Father Theodore Gibson Highway? I mean, we have local heroes who fought for civil rights and. Uh, you know, maybe acknowledge them. Yeah, I would agree with you. If we're going to rename a highway, we should look locally to see who are Floridians that we admire. Yeah, right. And I think it should be more than just the county commission deciding. I think uh, the citizens ought to have uh, a, mm -hmm. a say. And um, I, I think it's, you know, there's a lot of complexity to it. I'm not convinced that we have to rename it, although I absolutely recognize, you know, that there are uh, historical reasons and uh, very valid reasons in terms of not hurting our fellow citizens. But um, I, I think that this should require a lot more thought than just a quick commission vote. I hope uh, Commissioner Moss is listening and maybe you just threw out a couple of names. <laughs> this could get a lot of fun. Thank you.